Hi everybody and welcome to this episode of Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. So how can we introduce today's guest, Ray Winconnell? Uh, believe me, it's, it's not easy. Uh, you know, for those of us working in the area of men and masculinities, she's something of a household name. Indeed, she's one of the founders of this research field and her 1995 book, Masculinities, is a, well, almost certainly the key text in this area. And while she's been best known internationally for her studies on masculinity, she's also written and researched widely on issues such as gender and sexuality, education, class, neoliberalism, Southern theory, and the politics of intellectual life. Now, Raywin officially retired, in inverted commas, in 2014, after a long and illustrious career, but she continues to do a range of fascinating work, and she's now Professor Emerita at the University of Sydney. Happily, her hugely influential oeuvre has recently been recognised by the International Sociological Association Award for Excellence in Research and Practice, which is awarded by peers and is only given every four years, I believe. Yeah, so congratulations on that very well-deserved award, Raywin. Um, so we're speaking to you uh, at home today in, in Sydney. And so it's the evening for, for Raywin, but uh, early morning for us. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to speak to us, Raywin. Well, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, we're really, really grateful and delighted that you accepted our invitation to come on the podcast. Yeah. And so uh, obviously we've in the last few years, we've all been through the most kind of appalling upheaval, I suppose, as a result of, of COVID-19. And I suppose we could talk for an hour just about that. Um, but of course, now overlaid on top of that currently is Russia's horrendous invasion of Ukraine. And I know that during the pandemic, you wrote a kind of self-isolation diary uh, about your kind of experiences during the pandemic. Um, and in that, you mentioned uh, an important book which you read called Boys in Zinc by Svetlana Alexievich, uh, which provides kind of harrowing grassroots testimonies of the Soviet war in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. And so we were just wondering if you might like to say something about, about that and about the connections between masculinity and war, which perhaps that book highlights. And are there any echoes there with what's happening current, currently in Ukraine? Sure, I, I'm, I'm quite sure that um, story of Russian involvement in Afghanistan and indeed Svetlana's book uh, is in the minds of many people in, in Russia at the moment. Uh, it's really quite remarkable and inspiring to see the, the public opposition uh, mm -hmm. to what the regime is, is doing, uh, which is obviously not an easy thing to do in contemporary mm -hmm. Russia. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about that uh, a lot and um, as, as in thinking about a number of other political problems, issues of, of masculinity, you know, do, do surface. Um, but there's, I, I want to sort of warn against one easy way of, of doing that, which is to look at the, the guy who's the figurehead that is Vladimir Putin, and start imputing certain patterns of masculinity to him as a, as a kind of individual. See him, for instance, as an exemplar of, of toxic masculinity, whatever that means, and, uh, and then attribute the thing to, uh, to a, a malevolent kind of masculinity. Now, I, I, I want to emphasise that you know, understanding a situation like this, you've got to look beyond prominent individuals. You've got to think about the 
the institutions that are involved. You've got to think about the economic forces that are in play. If you want to think about Putin, you've got to think about his background, his background in the secret police, then in the chaos of the time after the, the death of the Soviet Union, the process of state building, which he and others were involved in. And then, of course, his, you know, surfacing at the top of the heap, uh, building up power, building up an alliance among the Russian billionaires and uh, putting down various oppositions. Um, I mean, there is an authoritarian political practice there. And undoubtedly, there is a masculinized culture of politics in the country, but also a masculinized culture of, of economic power and in the military too. And, and there is a literature on this, not necessarily specifically about Russia, but about the, the role of masculinity, uh, cultures of masculinity, certain kinds of practices emphasizing masculinity, how important they have been in the history of, of armies, of military forces, military decision-making, uh, the turbulence that's created in contemporary military forces with equal opportunity regimes coming in, not in Russia particularly, but in other cases. So there's all of that kind of background that we also have to, uh, to recognise and, and bring into our thinking uh, as well as the particular leadership. Similarly, I mean, if we're thinking about, you know, uh, politics in, in our own countries, in, in Britain, one can, you know, people do public psychoanalyses of, of Johnson, but that doesn't really help in understanding how you've got a regime like that. Or in Australia, you know, the, uh, the conservative, you know, e equally conservative regime that we've got here, which has a rather different public style, but very similar kinds of policies and, and economic uh, backing. So all of that has to be part of the picture, I, I guess. Uh, and yet it's, you know, I totally understand the, the visceral horror um, that, that so many people feel, understandably feel, in, in the face of a, you know, what is you know, fairly patently a, an unprovoked military onslaught that uh, serves the, the interests of at least the ruling clique in the dominant military power in the region. Now, of course, Russia is not the only country that's done this at all, uh, but it's the one that's front and centre at the moment, for sure. I suppose some of the things you were saying there about who's in government currently, how that came to be, also does feel quite relevant during the pandemic. Um, perhaps, you know, that might, those kinds of, uh, the way that government is run in certain countries might have influenced responses to, to COVID as well. And perhaps, perhaps again, elements of masculinity are influencing that as well, maybe. Um, I mean, did you want to say anything about, about that, about how yeah. you feel? Yeah, there is, there is something there. Um, it was often said, particularly in the, the first year of the pandemic, that countries with, um, with women uh, in, in the, the political leadership, uh, like Aotearoa, New Zealand, with Jacinta Ardern, uh, or Germany at the time, 
uh, we're actually doing better in controlling the, the pandemic uh, than countries with a, a masculine leadership. Whether that would still be the case, I don't know. Things have maybe even not a bit over time. Mm. But again, there are so many things influencing the the rates of infection, rates of hospitalisation and so forth in different countries. It's You, you, you can't place very much weight on a, on a single issue. But there, there are a lot of ways in which the pandemic is gendered. Um, mm. The death rates, for instance, for men are, are actually higher than for women. Why that should be so is debated by the medicos, you know, whether it's to do with practices like smoking that have historically been more common among men than among women, at least among the older generations of men, uh, persistent uh, alcohol abuse. They may be part of the explanation. There may be some physiological differences that affect it too, but it is a a feature. But more important than that is the gender divisions uh, in the workforce, in the health workforce, Mm -hmm. where... Uh, I think the the global figure is that something like 70% of the health workforce are women, um, but the in the professions which have most power, most determination over health policy, the ratio is the other way around, and that's a much uh, higher proportion of men among doctors uh, and among health administrators, all of that. What uh, has struck me and um, disturbed me, I guess, uh, as I've followed the, the, the pandemic and the, the social responses to it, is how it's it, the peculiar way in which it's been politicised, especially in the United States, but also in, in other countries as well, where the the pandemic and more exactly the responses to the pandemic have become mixed up with the assertion of certain kinds of right-wing political culture which themselves are very powerfully masculinized you know even if the voting base has a a very large number of women in it uh, nevertheless the the leadership and the political style um, often emphasizes familiar themes (laughs) Dominant mm-hmm. forms of, of masculinity, you know, toughness, risk taking. There have been, you know, political controversies and campaigns in which public health measures have been presented as a sign of weakness, of not being a real man. If you wear a mask or if, as the, you know, the governor or the president or the prime minister, you push for public health measures this is seen as a you know, sign of, of either you know being a control freak and a, a totalitarian or not a proper man and so you know it is a confused scene uh, in some ways but um, that that has become a, a powerful thematization of the the pandemic where public health measures themselves are coded as weakness, as feminine, and, you know, you, you, you see some consequences of that, including, you know, patterns of death. 
um, in our particular version of, of all that in Australia where the you know extremely vocal far right is not as powerful as it is in the United States we've nevertheless you know have a regime which is simply not committed to an ethic of care or a sense of public responsibility government responsibility for issues like health care of the elderly uh, even when it's their constitutional responsibility you have a kind of washing of hands, a, a Pontius Pilate kind of a response to what has been a, a really quite terrifying rate of death uh, from COVID-19 in old people's homes, um, you know, which follows from an agenda of privatisation, of retreat, of the welfare state, the whole business of the... Uh, uh, you know, the celebration of the, the inventive and hard-nosed entrepreneur so that more and more of health services have been handed over to profit-making institutions and they cut, you know, they cut their labour costs by reducing the average qualifications of the workforce and by hiring casualised and are often, you know, massively overworked care workers, uh, it's not surprising that you have a, the, the kind of consequences that we've seen. You've mentioned a, a range of very important themes there, uh, Raymond, but we wanted to talk in a minute about your earlier uh, sure. book, Masculinities. But before we do, could we explore some of the work before that as well, yeah. you know, um, which provided the, the building blocks, if you like, for that book. I mean, you were very involved in empirical work in high schools in the late mm -hmm. 70s. You researched pupils' experiences of school life, teachers' practices, family strategies, different strategies, trajectories growing up. And that became the authored book, Making the Difference, in 1982, which, as I understand it, was really about analysing and responding to class, to gender inequalities in, in education. But it feels, and this is going back to what you were just saying, really, that you identified a range of issues then, which are all still highly relevant, but the policy agenda has gone backwards since neoliberalism took hold. Would you say that's a fair... Um, well, that's a fair summary, yeah. Um, <laughs> in a nutshell, uh, I can improve <laughs> on your nutshell. Um, yes, uh, we were, uh, I guess... Uh, that, that was an absolutely fascinating research project that, that, that you're mentioning. It's one of the research projects that I've thought about, you know, for a very long time uh, since, and I'm still still reflecting on, I guess. And I, I had a really terrific experience with the, the small research group who uh, who did that study and and uh, and wrote it up. We were, you, you know. Uh, launching out with a, a fairly conventional uh, research problem at the start, you know, how, how are social inequalities in education produced and, and maintained over time? Um, we did that by interviewing 14 or 15-year-olds in um, two kinds of schools, uh, mainstream working-class public schools and elite private schools, the schools that the children of the, of the ruling class were sent to. And we didn't just 
interview the kids. We also interviewed their teachers um, and we also interviewed their parents and went and <coughs> interviewed the parents in their homes. So it was a, not just, a, if you like, a bit of school ethnography, but ethnography around the school as well. It was an absolutely fascinating project. And that, uh, you know, automatically brought us into areas like how class differences relate to gender patterns. You know, if we're, we're visiting homes and seeing gender divisions of labour in the home, who in the family is engaging with the school, who is not, what, what, what different expectations the school are, um, what the teachers are making of the situation of the kids, uh, what different teachers are understanding their by their educational task and so forth. Now, all of that linked to class um, and to the the different, you know, quite strikingly different educational outcomes for kids of wealthy families on one hand, you know, mainstream working class families on the other. But it also, you know, every aspect of it seemed also to be connected with gender, with divisions of labour uh, between the parents, divisions of labour between different groups of teachers, so that you tended to get, you know, more men teaching in areas like mathematics or um, metal work and um, technical skills and so forth. You tended to get more women in areas like drama, like English studies, um, you know, domestic skills. You could see this playing out in the school and you also had sort of hierarchies. But the thing that uh, was, if you like, most dramatic and, and most powerfully influenced my, my later thinking was what we saw among the kids, um, the way they were negotiating class and gender and even ethnicity and geographical location in their lives inside and outside outside the school and it was there that we saw you know something that that has remained uh, as an important issue for me ever since the the presence of different patterns of masculinity and femininity in the same social group uh, in the same social setting um, you had these variations in gender practices, in the ways kids related to each other, the way they asserted themselves or didn't, their expectations for the future, the kinds of careers or lives they might be looking for. And that was actually where the idea of hegemonic masculinity first crystallized. Um, as you know, um, in one of the reports we wrote from that project, which was called uh, Using uh, Good Australian Language, the, the report was called Ockers and Discomaniacs, which was a phrase used by one of the, by a witty teacher uh, to describe <laughs> the, uh, the kids in the class. Uh, and I don't quite know how to translate ocker. Uh, into English. <laughs> I, I can tell you, I looked it up, Raywin. Oh, yes, tell me. I looked it up and uh, it said a word for rough, uncouth Australian men. There you go. <laughs> so there you go. So, uh, Not too bad. And I believe in that report you also con contrasted the Ockers with the Cyrils. Is yes. That right? 
Yes. The Cyrils were effectively the Scots. Um, well, we, we didn't exactly... No, the Cyrils actually came became visible in a different school, different oh, context. Oh. So there wasn't quite a direct um, contrast. The contrast we saw in the same school, this was one of the ruling class schools, was the Cyrils versus the Bloods. And I think you you understand what the bloods were in the context yeah. of the ruling class school. I mean, you've got yeah. one of those prime minister now. You, you, you understand <laughs> that style. Um, and uh, these were the you know the lads who were doing well on the party scene, uh, quite likely to be in the first fifteen football team. Um, they weren't stupid. Um, I mean, they weren't failing in the exams. No one in those schools would be failing in exams. That was part of the deal that the, the school offered uh, to the parents, that they would get them through. And if they wanted to go to university, they would. But it was uh, what was interesting was the, the reputation of the school, the capacity to offer that service to ruling class parents uh, depended on their doing really well in the competitive exams at matriculation level. So they needed not only the Bloods, but they needed the SWATs. Um, and the slang term for those in that particular school was the Cyrils, uh, who, who, according to the stereotype, you know, wore gla round glasses and would never be seen on a football field and were from time to time bullied by the Bloods. But of course, that was bad for the school. Uh, if that happened and they drove the Cyrils away, the school's average uh, results in the competitive exams at the end of, of the high school um, year uh, would fall and the school's economic interests would be damaged and their, their cultural position would be damaged. The school needed both. And it was, you could, we had really interesting discussions with some of the teachers who were responsible for that particular year about how they negotiated this tension and sort of held the bloods back a bit without actually frightening them off or turning the school into a Cyril's-only kind of production. It was absolutely fascinating. So you have an interplay between the teachers uh, and the kids, interplay among the kids, all of this in the context, of course, the, the parents, uh, many of them in this kind of school, uh, had been to either the same school or the same kind of school before. So the fathers had their agenda for the kind of masculinity that the boys would be. So this is, you know, fascinating, multi-sided politics of masculinity going on uh, in and around uh, the lives of this, this cohort of kids. That was a wonderful model for, for seeing what, what could happen in the gender dynamics and the gender politics of everyday life. Mm. And, uh, you know, you can't read off those categories to any other situation. You always have to ask, you know, what are the actual masculinities or femininities at work in a particular situation? But that was illuminating enough, I think, that it sent me off mm. to, to think, you know, more conceptually about uh, how we could understand multiple masculinities, the, the you know, presence in the same group or in the same situation, 
different pattern, different ways of being a boy or a man and what the consequences of those were. And, and that was the, I guess, the launch point or about the launch point for my thinking in when I came to construct uh, a research project specifically about masculinities and begin to collect life histories of, of men, their sort of retrospective stories of their education, their family life, but also their, their adulthood and begin to see patterns in the differences among them and think about the way those those patterns of difference might work. Yeah, that, that sounds such a fascinating project, you know, and I'm just thinking back, um, on one of the earlier episodes, we interviewed Mike Ward, who's done some work in uh, schools in South Wales, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it does, it has echoes of the work that you did, but he said with his work, he didn't reckon he could do it today he wouldn't get the access well and i think possible. perhaps the same that's would be true possible. for the work that you did and it seems such a shame that that you know such risk rich research struggles to to to, to, to be done now place and, yep. and be done yeah you know but what you were describing in some ways sounds very contemporary actually uh, well, well in I'm, terms of you know the, the relation dynamic relations between all uh, the players yeah so, yeah uh, that's yeah. what i would expect not not a simple reproduction of the same pattern, but you know comparable dynamics, if you like. Yeah, I mean the other thing that that I think comes up a lot in Ockers and Disco's Maniacs is you know a kind of debunking of sex role theory as well, mm. which I don't think you've mentioned, but that's part of the whole analysis around hegemonic masculinity, isn't it? Oh yes, that actually, yeah. you know, certain types of uh, being or behaviour are made culturally dominant. And that's that goes well beyond sex role theory. That, that's right, isn't it? I think so. Um, sex role theory is not a trivial uh, idea, but I had been working on on role concepts as a you know theoretical tool beforehand, and I was um, you know had become convinced that role is you know is only a halfway house, if you like, to a, a, an adequate social analysis really of anything. Um, it, it was the way in which people in the 1970s recognised, by talking about sex roles, they could recognise that there was a social component in what men did as against what women did or um, what, what came to be spoken of as masculinity and femininity. That was not just given in our hormones or our genetics, but there was a social component in it and indeed a powerful social component in it. But it was only a halfway house to a good understanding of those social processes because it, it, um, it really had uh, very little grip on economic issues, on issues of power, relations, it didn't tell us very much about violence, about gendered violence, anything like sexual harassment was hard to understand in in sex role terms. And uh, it's most fundamentally, it didn't give us uh, anything like an adequate grip on the multiplicity of gender patterns. Uh, Sex role theory always pretty much presumed that there was a male role here and 
a female role there. And they were social roles, right, and they were somehow related to each other. But the only way you could get sort of plurality or diversity into the picture was by talking about deviance from the role. So when I first, you know, published a piece from my life history work, part of which involved interviews with gay men, about their lives and I thought, you know, there's fascinating stuff here and I wrote it up and I sent it to a mainstream sociology journal. And they said, look, this is all very well and it's a nice piece of research and we like it, but these people are deviants from the rock. <laughs> You've got to connect this argument with the sociology of deviants. So that was the professional response, if you see, from people who thought in conventional role terms, which we, of course, were trying to push beyond. Yeah, I, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that, actually, Raywin, because obviously, so yeah, around this time, you're developing this concept of hegemonic masculinity, and, and this, as you, as you say, is, has a huge impact, really, across the world in, in people's thinking, as, as well as your kind of broader theorizing around gender. And um, yeah, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about, you know, about what you think about that. You know, did you expect that work to have the impact that it's had? And, and how do you feel now about the analysis you did back then? And, and you know, t to what extent do you think it is still relevant to today's mm. world? <laughs> yeah, it was something of a... Um, well, one hopes for that, of course, always. But, but when, it, when it does happen, um, it's always a bit of a shock. And we knew that there was an interest in the field um, so that the first sort of major paper about masculine, not, not actually the first thing I wrote about masculine, but the first, you know, major thinking through of, of the field was the, a co-written paper that came out in 1985. And um, we knew we weren't the only people thinking about this issue, but uh, it seemed that that came out at a moment when a lot of people were beginning to think about that issue and it was able to give them a bit of language, a bit of, you know, a bit of framework, a way of thinking about this. Um, so that began to be translated into other languages or reproduced in books of readings and so forth. And when a, just a couple of years later, I, I published a theoretical book on gender, which I thought, you know, was a kind of, you know, broad synthesis of the whole field. Um, and that began to be reasonably widely read and, and cited. It wasn't at that time the full argument that was being noticed and cited. It was the, the passages about masculinity and the, the, uh, the model, if you like, of, of forms of masculinity within a patriarchal society that, that was sketched there. But the, the rest of the, the argument, you know, circulated more slowly, came, came through, did downstream have a, a, an impact, but it wasn't the, the sudden burst of attention that the, that very specific argument about masculinity, about there being multiple masculinities and a hierarchy of masculinities and the two sort of being, you know, in something we need to think together. Um, that uh, seemed to be a valuable move 
for many people, many researchers. And then uh, quite quickly, um, in various areas of practice, um, it was being picked up in counselling work, it was being picked up by teachers, especially teachers dealing with groups of boys who wanted some kind of guidance about uh, what might be going on. It was picked up uh, by other researchers, of course. It was picked up eventually by people working on issues of violence, and violence prevention. Um, and that was really exciting to me um, to see that, you know, something that came out of, you know, uh, what in a somewhat derogatory sense is termed curiosity research. That's research that is not commissioned by a profit-making corporation to increase its, its pelf, um, but is, is designed by researchers in terms of what they think is the, you know, the way to develop understanding in a given area. And find not only does it develop understanding in that area in the sense of kicking off further and better research by other people, but also turns out to be practically useful to, to a range of, of practitioners in different areas. That was really quite exciting. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of connected to that a little bit, I suppose. Going back to the Ockers and Discomaniacs work, um, like we noticed in the report that, you know, there's some quite, there's some things in there which are perhaps quite prescient to today about how, you know, some of the boys you were speaking to were talking about things like uh, gender equality. Because like, just to quote from it, on the one hand, the boys think, or some of the boys think women's liberation means women on top. What can it mean for them except the loss of masculinity? But on the other hand, uh, you also said that a good many boys uh, weren't threatened by the idea of equality for women. They just didn't see any particular way that it connected with them. And we just thought, you know, perhaps does this, or does this still today sum up how lots of boys and men are responding to feminism and, and gender equality? And, and yeah, did you want to say anything about that, about what you're seeing today, about different ways in which boys and men are responding to kind of women's movements and for gender equality? Yeah, I guess the... the... The big difference there is we're at a different historical moment. Um, mm-hmm. So when we were doing those interviews, those interviews were being done in the late 1970s. And women's liberation was still a new thing at, at that time. I mean, it was still, you know, a surge that seemed to be happening. Um, well, ten year, even 10 years later, you know, the surge some was still going on in some parts of the education system. In other parts, it had come to a halt. And uh, not much later, there was a visible backlash. So I don't think you've got uh, quite the uh, the same high emotion about the presence of feminism now. And you also have now more experienced opposition. So what um, seemed in in the 1980s to be strange and worrying that what was then uh, dubbed backlash is now all very familiar, and uh, you know there are uh, political movements which have been practicing a, a uh, what we might call a backlash politics quite deliberately, as in, a, in an attempt to mobilise a certain kind of political base. I mean, this is now um, mutated in a way that what would have been you know, most sharply directed against feminists in the 1980s and 90s is now being more directed against gay, queer and trans groups. 
as you see in the current uh, kerfuffle in Texas with the attempt to by the uh, political right-wing political regime there to criminalise care work by parents of trans kids. I mean, it's just astonishing concept. Um, so the, if you like, the political moment <laughs> changes and we, 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 you know, as well as seeing more or differently troubling um, uh, forms of, of neoconservative mobilisation, we're also at a time when, when some of the gains of women's liberation can now more or less be taken for granted. So, it, you know, we find a lot of boys and, and men today saying gender equality, yeah, of course. I mean, what's the, puzzle? What's the problem? And that wasn't quite the way. Uh, that it was um, handled in the, in the 70s when we were doing that first mm. wave of, of interviews. It was more gender equality doesn't seem bad to me, but as you say, you know, what's it got to do with me? I don't see how it relates to me. Um, like perhaps many people have learned that. Sorry. No, I was just thinking that, I mean, sometimes the, the surveys tend to suggest a sort of difference between the rhetorical commitment that men have to gender yeah. equality and and change in actual practice. I mean, if you think about the, you know, the uh, behaviour of fathers, for example, very often mm -hmm. they're saying, yes, I'm more involved, da, 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 and then you ask the partner and, and you think, well, <laughs> hold on, <laughs> these stories aren't quite the same of what's happening in practice. Yeah, So uh, um, for, for sure. Uh, and, you know, I think it's... Um, there actually are changes in the division of labour, you know, that, that we can find find evidence for. A lot of fathers still are not pulling their weight, but there's a greater number of them now doing hands-on fathering than there was 50 years ago. You know, <laughs> yes, as was yeah. Galileo said, yes, it does move. <laughs> it might be moving slowly. Um, yeah, I mean another another theme that uh, we wanted to ask you about, um, which comes up in masculinities, was that of the environment. And in the in the book, uh, you explored several examples of how men engage in environmental politics and how they came to reject, if you like, mainstream masculinity and remake themselves by being more open, more honest, more vulnerable. But you, I think you also suggest that those kinds of individual responses they don't amount to social transformation. You know, and that the environmental movement tends to be um, non-gendered as well. I'm wondering how you see the the climate movement, climate justice movement now, and whether these kinds of criticisms are still relevant in mm. uh, in the environmental. No, I, th I think it has changed, and uh, I mean we were doing those interviews. I think before the emergence of green parties in the English speaking world, at any rate or in the very early days of them. And what was what we saw in those interviews, what we understood in, in interpreting those interviews as a highly individualised response. And, and why we were doing those interviews was because the research project was looking at groups of men who were in situations that might be generating change in masculinity. Um, and we did, in the context of the environmental movement, find a, you know, an interview, a number of men who had encountered 
feminism in the movement had taken feminist positions seriously and had tried to rethink um, you know, what it meant to be a man and how, how a man should live his life. And that was, a, you know, that was quite an impressive you know, thing to see happening, so to speak, in the, before your eyes, um, or at least in the, 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 the narrative of, of the interview. But what we were seeing also was a whole series of individual projects. We weren't seeing those different projects connecting with each other or having a, uh, a visible uh, arena in the environmental movement. But I think you would find that now rather more. You would find um, you know, significant groups of men in the environmental movement who had, you know, over a long period of time been thinking about gender issues, been reading feminist texts, um, had you know been debating these these issues in and around the movement. So that if you like, there's more of a collective project of change now. Now how I, I don't actually have any data about how widespread this is. So I can't say that this characteristic of the movement as a whole, but I think some of it is there now in a way that it wasn't a generation ago. And so uh, one of the things we, we do like to ask our guests on Now Men, Ray Wynn, is we do also like to explore the personal side of doing this work as well. And of course, over your career, you've kind of often made use of and, and advocated for the kind of life history method um, in your research. Um, so I was just wondering how you would reflect on your own kind of personal life history. Uh, obviously, yeah. that's quite a, a big <laughs> question. <laughs> but perhaps just for a few minutes, um, you know, how do you feel about your own kind of personal journey as a sociologist, intellectual? as an activist sure well it's been a a, a complex story um, I, I would have to say and the the later part of my life was has been fairly eventful so yes I've maintained I've been uh, you know a, an academic uh, all the time until my retirement, which is now about seven years ago, my alleged retirement, I should say, <laughs> it comes to get you, uh, whether you like it or not. Um, I'm a widow. My life partner died some more than 20 years ago now, and uh, that was a huge life upheaval, as, as you might expect. I'm a parent. And I've had the, the wonderful experience of, uh, of being with a, a daughter growing up, uh, growing into adulthood, carving her own directions in the world. All of that is splendid. Um, and as, as you know, I've made a gender transition uh, quite late in life, uh, having thought about it for a very long time and therefore having to think about it in retrospect too. So... I suppose one of the things I would like to to talk a bit about is transition and, um, in, in my case, life as a, a transsexual woman uh, and the the implications of, of trans experience for, for men and for people working with men, I guess. And I guess one, one thing I would like to say is that the gender transition is, is in no sense a, a rejection of, of gender or 
uh, of men or of women, it's it's not a sex change either. That's a common term that the, the media tend to use, but I don't think it's a good one. Um, there's another language for talking about gender transitions. Often people talk about now talk about gender affirmation and rather than gender change. And I think that's a good uh, a good approach. It, it means you are affirming something that has been a long-standing reality. It's been there already. Um, and what has been there, if, if I uh, use some of my tools of trade to think about it as a, a sociologist of gender, transitions are about where you belong in the gender order uh, and usually where you have belonged in, in some significant way for a long time. Um, so it has become a part of your, your life. There are contradictions in, in gender. Um, actually, in everybody's life, there are some contradictions. Um, and in this case, one is dealing with fairly large contradictions about gender. Um, that is a sense of having been in the wrong place in, in gender relations in, in the world at large and eventually taking action to correct that. Now, many people take that action very much earlier. It, it happened in my uh, course of life to, to happen relatively late. But whatever it is, it's, it's, a, it's a large issue and it, it requires a great deal of work to construct a life um, after transition. It requires work and emotional attention from other people. It involves making demands on other people, which can be tough, uh, can be very tough indeed. It's a process that will sometimes break up marriages or long-standing relationships. Um, can lead to to very tough uh, family situations where a family is involved. In my case, I was wonderfully lucky uh, because I've a lot of family support, and and that has seen me through some uh, some bad times. Um, I think it's important to uh, for people involved in in work with men, as it would be for people involved in work with women. Uh, to know something about the trans scene because there's so much controversy and media talk uh, about it, uh, which is sometimes rather different from the reality. So the first thing is that the numbers are small, despite this huge you know, uh, controversy about uh, trans men, trans women, uh, trans issues generally, the actual numbers are relatively small. So we're dealing with a, a small and potentially quite marginalised group. There are, uh, there, there's no single pattern uh, for you know, trans femininity or trans masculinity. I've talked to trans support groups, I think in about eight or nine countries uh, around the world, including some uh, countries in the developing world, as well as the, the rich Anglophone countries. And the, the life situations are really incredibly different. And the local cultures uh, of gender and of, of gender marginality are also very different. So 
it's a, a small but also very diverse uh, world um, to, to, to be involved in. Um, there are, of course, trans men as well as trans women. Trans women have got most of the publicity, most of the attention, and uh, indeed, I think, most of the abuse. Uh, but there are people who trans, uh, tra you know, transition into masculinity and manhood who you know, have lives as significant and in, in various ways as tough uh, and have uh, my sympathy and support uh, complete, completely. It's worth thinking about why trans men have got less attention than trans women. I won't try and answer that in in two minutes, but it, it's a good problem to think about, which casts you know some interesting light on on wider uh, gender patterns. I think what I can say is that um, despite the diversity, the different situations in poor countries and rich countries, the different cultural traditions involved, it's generally the case that that um, uh, the trans groups are under pressure, and many of them are very marginalised, living precarious lives. There's a high rate of gender-based violence against feminised trans um, trans women, trans groups, not all of whom, of course, are women. And there's a significant weight of premature death too. So this is like sometimes life and death study uh, stories um, and 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 issues. So it's it's a tough country to be involved in, and yet you know it's it's also a source of joy, affirmation, and realization, which of course is why people take these these risks and um, uh, move in, in in this direction. So I I I have a few. Uh, bits of advice to to allies and friends, if you don't mind my um, exploiting this moment to, to speak about it. The first is uh, don't think that uh, trans men, trans women or other trans groups are exotic. Uh, in, in most respects, the lives are, are ordinary, are actually uh, you know, have the same components as other people's lives, if somewhat differently arranged and uh, often more vulnerable to, uh, to attacks from outside. Um, but I wouldn't think of uh, trans groups as villains. I wouldn't think of them as heroes, especially, uh, but as sharing, you know, uh, most facets of lives with, with other groups. I've already said that there are, contradictions and complexities in in everybody's life uh, which are endemic in in the gender order and in that respect it can be useful to think of trans lives as simply an extreme you know one extreme something that is common in across um, all lives uh, of tension complexity and and contradiction in, in life um, and the last thing I want to say is that, you know, despite the fact that uh, transition is always a, in an important sense an individual matter, support does count. 
uh, it, it really does matter uh, to trans groups. And I think especially uh, those who are in positions of precarity who don't have the kind of cultural or economic uh, resources that I have had uh, in my life. Bear in mind that trans groups can face a lot of collective hostility from fundamentalist religions, from right-wing politicians, from dictatorships. Um, these create needs and basic solidarity uh, for people in those kinds of situations with those kinds of needs uh, really does matter, does make a difference. I've uh, even with all my privileges, I've been immensely sustained uh, by the support and goodwill uh, that I've I've received in in my life, and I'm I'm deeply grateful for that. Thank you for giving such a open, honest, and informative uh, response to that question, okay. uh, Raywin. Um, can I ask you one other thing, actually, sure. on the back of what you've been saying, which is um, about life as an older trans woman? Because I can imagine there's fewer of you, really. This um, is absolutely right. Um, you know, and let, let me tell you a story about that. Um, I was talking once to a, a trans support group in Costa Rica. We were sitting in a coffee shack and talking about life and our lives and experiences and so on and so forth, doing the kind of exchange that you do in those circumstances. And somehow the question came up, how long uh, did you expect to live? And the, the colleagues uh, in Costa Rica talked about this in Spanish, of course, among themselves. I don't speak much Spanish. Uh, so I didn't follow the discussion. But eventually they told me their, their estimate, that they thought on the whole trans women or members of feminised trans groups um, in, in that region could expect a, an average life of something like 32 years. Uh, but in the next door country where there were death squads at work, they could expect maybe 28. And I suddenly thought, my God, I'm twice the age of anyone else here. I am much the oldest person. In the, well, not in the room. It was an outdoor shack, but uh, around. And, you know, that is a different story from my own. Very different. So you're right. there, And there are good, therefore, significant reasons. Of course, it's not all a matter of violence. It's also a matter of poverty precarity, bad housing conditions, exposure to disease, and so on and so forth. And in a country like Australia, you know, even in a country like Australia, uh, a lot of young trans people are living precarious lives in poverty and exposed to uh, not only violence, but uh, um, you know, hazardous diseases. So there's a reason then why older trans people are not so common. Uh, it has, uh, I guess, made me, uh, you know, a little, because I have uh, resources and I have a lot of experience, I can perhaps deal with the, the ups and downs, um, the occasional situations of stress or abuse um, more readily. And I have, uh, because of, you know, other aspects of my life, uh, a network of connections um, 
friendships, relations and so on, which in that respect, my life is not so different from that of, of other older women. And I, you know, um, don't regret growing old at all. I can't say I enjoy every aspect of it. Uh, the, you know the old joke that getting old is not a, a thing, thing for sissies, but it also has its rewards uh, among them. Um, seeing the brilliant things being done by younger people uh, coming along behind us. That's very similar to, um, I think, what someone you know, Lindsay Gall, said in her book. I don't know if you've read it, you know, Out of Time, The Pleasures and uh, Perils of Aging. She right. says similar things about um, valuing interdependence and treasuring connections with those who are younger and so on and so forth. Um, it sounds rather similar. It's yes, well... Nice. Uh, I haven't read that book, but I've read a good deal of Lynn's work and love it, and I will look for that book forthwith. Thank well, you. Just for the benefit of listeners, Lynn wrote one, what I think is one of the best books about masculinity as well, Changing Masculinity is Changing Men. So perhaps we'll give a plug for that. Sure. <laughs> but I think we're probably coming to the end of our time, but we realised when we were looking on your website and your background and everything that you also like to, like, to write poetry and um, maybe... Quite a lot of people wouldn't know that, but we thought it might be quite nice to offer you the opportunity to end with a poem. And I don't know, I think you've chosen one, but yes. I don't know if you want to say anything about it or whether you just want to read it. Um, um, over to well, you. Well, yeah, I will say that, um, I, yeah, I've been writing poetry off and on uh, throughout my life and even published it a little, and you will find... A, a selection of some of the more relatively recent ones on on my website. The one the one that I will read uh, is a kind of poem that comes out of everyday life and reflects uh, on on a moment in everyday life. In this case, the moment when the council truck comes around to collect the garbage. The, in this case, the green waste, and that's the title of the paper of the poem, Green Waste. Each second Monday, the council collects green waste from bins in the back lane. I rarely remember which week is the one, and my waste is mostly cockroach brown or the grey of dead twigs, so I quickly add, to encourage them, a layer of soft weeds that are still fresh. Green, yes, but is it waste? Can I trust this cost-cutting council to point its dump truck at a compost heap? I want my green wealth to feed new green and not the black waste of oil or the red waste of war. Thanks so much, Raywin. What a great poem to end with. I'm sure all of us know that moment with the uh, the dumper truck coming past in the mornings as well mm. and the relationship with the council and, uh, yeah, uh, and your last couple of lines there perhaps take us back to the start they of this are, conversation yeah. about where we were with yeah. uh, with Ukraine. Mm. Anyway, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been an yeah, absolute okay. pleasure for both of us. Yes, yeah, and, and thank um, you for all of the work you do, which is such an inspiration yeah, to us and many indeed. other people across the world. So. Yeah, well, thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. Glad to do it. <laughs> Take care. Thank Bye. You.
Well, that was a very wide-ranging interview with uh, Raywin, wasn't it, Stephen? Um, just for the benefit of listeners, by the way, if you could hear uh, some noise in the background, that was actually Australian wildlife. The crickets, I think, were out in the evening. So just to clear that one up, that one up before we go any further. But Stephen, what, what did you think? Yeah, well, first of all, I love the the sound of Australian wildlife in the background there. But also, yeah, I just thought it was an incredibly kind of fascinating and, and powerful conversation, really. And it, it's amazing to hear about the huge wealth of of work that Raywin's done. And actually, you know, all of the really interesting, nuanced, in-depth research which she's done, which her very influential theories are, are built upon. I think that's really powerful. And I suppose it, it just leads me to think, you know, I want to engage more with all of the, the range of work that she's done on different issues. And I can highly recommend all of our listeners to do the same because you know not only has she written this really amazing groundbreaking stuff about gender and masculinities but she's also done a lot of work around what she calls southern theory for example which feels you know ever more topical at the moment as we're talking more and more about things like decolonizing the curriculum and, and things like that and she's also done some great and kind of really positive and inspiring work about what's going on in universities and and you know all of the bad things that have been happening in terms of privatization and cuts and casualization which are you know highly relevant again at the moment because here in the UK of course we have been having a strike at universities you know lots of us have been on strike in recent weeks but she's actually written a great book recently about you know what would a good university look like and how can we how can we create that so I can again definitely recommend people to check that out uh, what, what did you think Sandy? Yeah well just to, to build on the point you just made there really going back to the start of our conversation with Raywin she was interesting about Ukraine and about Putin and the way that uh, it's presented uh, in our media as, as if it's just a sort of individual story about Putin uh, equating him with the, the strong man and kind of divorcing him from the, the groups and institutions around him. But actually, as she made clear, and, and this seems to be a sort of key, it's a key element of her work, it's about the collective, it's about so social societal issues as well and the institutions that are involved. And uh, I, I just thought that was an interesting and useful answer. We've all seen those media images of Putin and the big table and, you know, the Western leaders at the other end of the table or, or uh, others close by and so on and so forth. And actually, yes, that kind of matters in terms of presentation, but it's it's far from being the whole story of, of what's going on, actually. So uh, I thought that was very relevant. The other thing I just thought would be worth picking up on was um, that last segment there about being a trans woman. You know, that was very powerful, very honest, very open. We don't hear very much about that issue. And I just thought it was incredibly uh, honest of her to talk about it, really. The other thing to mention there was her answer in relation to old age as well. And I thought it was quite nice, the the correspondence, if you like, between you know what Lynn Seagal has written about being an older woman and what Raywin was saying. And I certainly got a sense of someone um, who was still engaged, active, interested, funny, joyous, and so on and so forth. So, you know, she, she clearly is enjoying her old age yeah, I agree. I really, I really, uh, that was really nice to hear, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, and, and I think what you were saying as well about Putin and Russia and the just the, the terrible situation in Ukraine currently, you know, I think that took us, like her poem actually, uh, at the end, took us back to the first question, didn't it? And about this book, um, Boys in Zinc. And I suppose the title actually kind of partly refers, doesn't it, to how during the Afghanistan war, 
all of these kind of Russian soldiers were coming back in these zinc coffins. And you do think, you know, you just can't help but think about the massive, horrifying human cost of the war that's going on in Ukraine currently. And all of the Ukrainian people who are just suffering massively and, and dying, you know, civilians um, in many cases. But also, of course, there, there'll be these many Russian soldiers, you know, many of them incredibly young men going back home in, in coffins. And you just wonder, you know, might that instigate some questioning of the regime in Russia? I mean, we have seen those really inspiring, incredibly brave protests as well. The other point about it is, in a way, that title, you know, Boys and Zinc, is also an ironic comment on the sort of Stalinist men of steel, you know, presentation of masculinity and idealised masculinity, which is about strongman and so so forth. But yeah, I think um, for now, that's the, uh, the end of the podcast. So uh, we hopefully we'll be speaking to you again soon. Um, but for now, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to contact us at nowamen at gmail.com if you've got any questions or feedback and do subscribe and share us with your friends. Uh, but for now, take care and speak to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>